Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew chapter 20, going from verse 20 to 34. We are in the latter stages of Jesus' ministry as, as he is heading towards Jerusalem to be crucified. He is operating Korea. east of the Jordan River in Petrea, right east of Jerusalem in present-day Jordan. He's left, crossed the Jordan River and gone back up to Jericho, which is about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him, approached Jesus, with her sons. Her sons were James and John, the son of Zebedee, the sons of Zebedee. She knelt down to ask him for something. Now, Mark, in a parallel passage, has James and John making the request. Matthew has the mother making the request. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 37 says this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. Jesus answers in verse 36, What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right hand, at your left, and at your left in glory. So isn't that nice? James and John sitting up there in heaven with Jesus in the middle, and they're on the left and the right. Now, how do we reconcile the fact? It was because both, how do we reconcile the fact that Matthew says the mother asked Jesus of this, and that Mark says that James and John asked for this? Well, it's very simple. All three of them came together. They made the request together, as my NIV study Bible says. Now, what motivated James and John to ask for this? Probably, the, according to John Gill, is what they had just heard in the previous chapter, Matthew 19. They had just heard Jesus talk about the disciples ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, Peter said, well, what have we done? Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. The rich young ruler couldn't give up everything, but we did. And Jesus said, that's right, you did. And you're going to be ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel, which we pointed out referring to their rulership over the church, their leadership of the church. He also had mentioned just previously three times, well, one time previously and altogether three times since he was up in Galilee, that he was going to be crucified killed, mocked, spit upon, scourged by the rulers and the chief priest. They didn't listen to that, though. All they heard was, oh, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. How nice. And so this is probably what motivated them to come up there and ask, because they wanted to be the big shots in the coming messianic kingdom of glory, a political kingdom in which the Romans were subjugated and everything was just hunky-dory. They didn't understand the part about Jesus being crucified. Luke verses 18:34, which is a parallel passage to to this incident, describing this incident, Luke says this, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. They didn't understand that Jesus was going to die. They were anticipating the temporal kingdom, which was going to be coming soon, they thought, and they wanted to be big shots in it. Now, why did they come alone without the other ten disciples? They were too ashamed to ask alone, so they sent their mother to do the asking. No, it's such he-men. They didn't want the other disciples to be jealous, and so they secretly, on the sly, came to Jesus. Now, Jesus is going to blow that up because he's going to publicly answer them to the other ten disciples, and they're going to hear what was going on, and they were going to get angry, too. So I guess James and John were quite rightly afraid of the jealousy of the other disciples. Now, this is interesting that they would ask to be big shots in the kingdom after what had just gone before. What had just gone before was... The disciples had wrongly sent the children away, and Jesus said, "If unless you be humble and like a little child, you're not going to be great, and you can't even see the kingdom of God." Well, that's exactly opposite of being wanting to be a ruler, wanting to be a big shot. And then, just in last chapter, Jesus talked about the rich young ruler, and he said, "You got to give everything away." And then he said, "The first shall be last." He used that expression, "The first shall be last," with the rich young ruler. The disciples heard that, and now here James and John are asking to be first, not last. 
Now, even earlier in the Galilean ministry, when Jesus and his disciples were walking from the Mount of Transfiguration to Capernaum in Matthew 18, two chapters previous, the disciples began grumbling among themselves, who would be greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus says, you need to be humble like a little child. They had no excuse for what they did here. They were taught, and their ears were dull. They didn't hear. Well, what gave the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee, the gall to come ask this? Well, she apparently had constantly followed and attended Jesus, and so she had gotten to know him, and she had showed her reliability. Her sons were two of Jesus' three favorite disciples, Peter, James, and John. James and John were two of them. She, perhaps people speculate that she was Jesus' aunt, Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, Joseph's sister. So she was maybe even related to Jesus. And as I said earlier, she just heard Jesus talk about giving the rule of the 12 tribes to the 12 disciples in chapter 19. So that's probably why she had the chutzpah to come ask Jesus for this absurd thing. That was in Matthew 19, verse 28. Let me read that to you. Jesus said to them, I assure you, in the messianic age, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That wasn't enough for James and John and their mother. They wanted to be the top two judges of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's really interesting, right after that in chapter 19, Jesus then said, you got to give everything for the kingdom. Those who have given everything away, lands, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, family members, everything, you'll get it back, but you got to give it up first. They didn't mention that either. Now, she did come very submissively and very humble as, as if Jesus was already the king. She knelt down before him. Oh, how pious, how humble, how stupid. By the way, the mother of Zebedee's sons is probably Salome, According to John Gill and Adam Clark, if you compare two scriptures, you'll get that. Matthew 27, verse 26. This is at the crucifixion. Among them, those standing around the crucifixion, were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Parallel passage in Mark 15:40. Then there were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph. Totally parallel. And then Salome. So if you look at the parallels between those two passages, you got mother of Zebedee's sons in Matthew. And in Mark, you got Salome. So you identify the two. And Zebedee's, James and John's mother is named Salome. Why is she called the wife of Zebedee? Why didn't it say James and John, the son of Zebedee? Well, probably because Zebedee is maybe dead now. Maybe he never followed Christ. This is John Gill's speculations. But his wife did. And so Matthew names the mother instead of the father. Let's go to Matthew 20, verse 21. What do you want? He, Jesus, asked her, Salome, promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine, that's James and John, these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. Now, when Jesus said, what do you want? Jesus knew what they wanted, probably, but he didn't immediately upbraid them. He gently tried to instruct them on the truth of what was coming. And another thing he did is he exposed the unseemly petition before all the other disciples. He had to teach them again, look, guys, I'm going to die. There's not going to be any glorious messianic kingdom. You've got to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. The glorious kingdom is going to come at the end of the world, and you have got the church age facing you first. They didn't understand all that. They didn't understand Pentecost. They didn't understand the Holy Spirit. They understood nothing. All they could think about was the power they were going to have. Now, why did she want one of her sons to sit on the right hand? The right hand for the Jews was the post of great honor and affection. I wonder how the mother would decide who she wanted to sit on the right, James or John. In 1 Kings 2.19, we see this. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him about Adonijah. The king stood up to greet her, bowed to her, sat down on his throne, 
and had a throne placed for the king's mother. So sitting she sat down on his, his right hand. Right hand. So that David is showing honor to his wife Bathsheba. This was the same for the Egyptians and the Romans. This was a common common thing in the ancient world. I mentioned several things that might have impelled Salome to ask for this presumptuous request. But remember, John, one of the two, James and John, the son of Zebedee, John actually leaned on Jesus' breast at, at meals or sat next to him. John, when he wrote the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. So maybe he was thinking, John could sit at the right hand of Jesus instead of James. Now Salome conveniently forgot about Peter of the three favorite apostles, Peter, James, and John. She just cut him out completely. Nepotism in the kingdom. Now isn't this interesting? Who's going to be first? Who's going to be first? Why did Jesus repeat that phrase several times, the first shall be last? It's because he knew human nature and he had it exhibited and manifested before him. People fighting for position and authority and tell me if that's not true today. Whether you're in academia, whether you're in a business, whether you're in politics, whether you're on a sports team, there's always the pecking order and everybody's fighting to get ahead pushing the other guy down. Jesus said, we're not going to live like that in the kingdom. Matthew 20, verse 22. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. She sure didn't. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? The reason that Salome didn't know what she's asking is because she's expecting glory and they were getting ready to get persecuted and shortly killed, as we'll see. How did they answer that? Are you able to drink the cup, to drink the cup of suffering? We are able, they said to him. Well, that's real cocky. James ended up running like a scared rabbit at the resurrection. Now, John did hang around to take care of Mary. That's, that's nice. But I don't know what happened to his mother. I bet she scattered, too. Who knows? I don't know what happened to her. Uh, she might have been, been at the crucifixion. I'll have to take that back. But at any rate, they're very cocky about being able to undergo to drink the cup of suffering that Jesus proposed. And they certainly weren't thinking about it at that point. Now... What happened to James and John? Well, James was the first of the apostles to be martyred, to killed, unjustly murdered. Acts 12, verses 1 through 2 tells us this. About that, about that time, King Herod, that's Herod Agrippa I, cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church. I think he took over in about 41 through 44 A.D., I think, after Antipas. About that time, King Herod Agrippa I is who it is, cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, John's brother, with the sword. And, of course, that's one son of Zebedee. And the other son of Zebedee was John. He ended up in exile on the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. So, yeah, they, they suffered. They weren't sitting on any thrones, not yet, because before glory has got to be suffering. Before resurrection, there has to be crucifixion, which is a good application for our Christian lives. Matthew 20, verse 23, he, Jesus, told them, that's James and John and their mother Salome, he told them, you will indeed drink my cup. They're going to suffer, as I just told you. James is going to be killed by the sword by Herod Agrippa I. John is going to end up on Patmos in exile. You'll indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not mine to give. Instead, it belongs to those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, what Jesus means here, it's not mine alone to give. Obviously, he has power. He's God to decide, to, to decide who's going to sit where in his kingdom. But what he means is the decision is who's going to be sitting where has got to be prepared first by my Father. It is not mine to give. The decision is not mine to give. It belongs to those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. To sit at my right and left hand belongs to those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, he never directly denies that James and John can sit at the right hand 
and the left hand, but that's not his purpose right now. He doesn't care who's sitting in his left hand and his right hand. That's going to be decided by God the Father, and he's going to carry that out. Now, when he says, you'll indeed drink my cup, that doesn't mean they're going to suffer exactly as Jesus suffered with crucifixion, but it means they're going to suffer in general, which they did. We'll notice now that after Pentecost, the persecution didn't cause them to lose their faith. James was still witnessing when he was killed, and John ended up writing one gospel and three letters in the book of Revelation in the New Testament canon. However, it must have been a great shock. They didn't know that at the time. And when they heard that instead of being ruling, ruling, they're going to be persecuted, because remember, Jesus already told them, I'm going down to Jerusalem to die, and you're going to drink my cup too. Ooh, that must have been hard to take. Now, some people say that when Jesus says, to sit at my right and left is not mine to give, He's referring to the fact that he's not a temporal ruler, so he doesn't have the right to to assign seats right and left in his temporal kingdom. That could be, but I really think I like my previous explanation, which is in heaven, to sit at my right and left. I don't decide that unless the Father's decided it first, and then I just ratify it. Matthew 20, verse 24. When the ten disciples heard this, so therefore Jesus must have let them know it when he answered James and John and Salome, all the other disciples heard it, the other ten. They became indignant with the two brothers. Well, do, do you blame them? Because it was obnoxious what they did. However, it should be pointed out that they had the same carnal aspirations as the James and John did. If they didn't care about who was sitting on the right and left, why would they become indignant? So they had reason to become indignant, but on the other hand, they were just as power-hungry as their fellow disciple. They wanted the same thing as James and John. They were indignant because they thought they were getting cut out of temporal rewards. As Jameson Fawcett Brown says, it is difficult, however, to blame them for getting upset given the audacity of what James and John did. And I, I, again, I don't blame them too much. Now, they might have gotten into a huge fight here unless Jesus had not stopped them. Reminds me of an NBA basketball coach and his his team members start fighting with each other and the coach has got to calm them down. Fighting for position. You know, if you want to make yourself happy for the rest of your life, don't fight for position in your job, in the military, in sports teams, or whatever it is you're in. Don't do that. It's a waste of your precious time. Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called them over and said, he heard them fighting, and he said, "Uh uh-uh, guys, hold it, come over here. And then he says, you know that the rules of the Gentiles dominate them, and the men of high position exercise power over them. The rulers of the Gentiles is talking about political rulers, Gentile rulers like the Romans. The men of high position exercise power. So he says secular rulers dominate and they exercise power. Now let's talk about this thing about exercise power. Because many people say that exercise power just means exercise unjust power. They argue this way because of parallels here. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them. And then parallel to that, they exercise power over them. Because actually, exercise power could just mean exercise authority, which is general authority, which nothing wrong with that. I think here, though, it's domination, dominating power, bad power, because he's trying to make a contrast between how the secular people outside of the kingdom rule and how you as Christians are going to rule. It's different. You're going to rule as children and slaves, as examples, leading from, from underneath as servants, lifting up the people you leave that you lead instead of lording it over them. Now, this was, of course, true of governments in Jesus' time, as John Gill said. I will tell you this. It's probably true of most governments, including most of the governments on the planet today. There are a lot of free democracies in the world today, and they exercise less power, and thank God for it, because their power is diffused through the courts, separation of powers, 
separating the executive authority and the judicial authorities, separating houses of parliament and all that, which is great, great, great innovations of Western civilization. But you look in China, for example, the government, the court system is run by the government. It is corrupt, and people get screwed all the time, including people I personally know get screwed by that government. So in general, I will say, yeah, the rulers of the Gentiles dominate those that they are supposedly serving, but actually they're not serving. They're tyrannizing over them. Now, why did Jesus call them over? Because he could hear them arguing, their heat, their passion. He heard it. He overheard it. And he says, come here, guys. Let me get this straight. Matthew 20, verses 26 through 28, as we continue, Jesus says, it must not be like that among you. Like what? Like the Gentiles lording it over or dominating uh, over uh, their subjects. It must not be like that among you. So quit trying to be big shots in the kingdom. He's already said this in the last chapter. He's repeating it again. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. You want to lead, you better serve. You want to be an elder in a church, you better serve. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom from many. This is, Luke 22 is got a full version of this. Talks about leadership. I call it leadership as children and slaves. Who has the least authority? Well, let's see. Children are not mentioned here in the parallel passage in Luke. Children are mentioned. So who has the least authority in a household is a child. Who has the least authority in a, in a household? A servant. So what he's saying is uh, your power does not come from your status, from your position of being a big shot. Your power comes from your moral authority. And your moral authority comes from how much do you serve your people? If you serve people by an example, they will voluntarily and happily give you the authority to serve them, to lead them. And he uses the supreme example of himself. When Jesus came, the Son of Man, did he come to be served? Did he come for people to proclaim him Messiah? No, he came to give his life. He, again, he's saying, I'm getting ready to die. A ransom for many. A ransom is a price you pay to a kidnapper to buy somebody out of captivity. He paid the ransom price of his blood to buy the redemption price, which is the, a ransom of his blood. And his blood was shed for many that are given saved. And that's the, that are going to be saved. And that is the example of service. You can't get a better example of that. To die for people who didn't deserve it. And not only to die, but to die a very cruel and horrible and anonymous death, a terrible type of death, a humiliating type of death. So, you disciples are talking about ruling the kingdom, and I'm talking about dying. And of course, we as Christians need to quit worrying about how what a big shots we are in our ecclesiastical organizations, and we need to be thinking about how we're going to die for our brothers, how we're going to serve them. Notice that here, there's two words used for servant and slave. Servant in verse 26 and slave in verse 27. They both mean approximately the same thing. Diakonos is servant in verse 26 and in verse 27. Slave is doulos, two different Greek words. They both serve, just one. A servant serves and then leaves is free to go after his services over. And a slave serves is not free to go afterwards, but the point is they both serve. They both serve. Another word for ransom, by the way, that Jesus gave is a redemption price. Ransom always reminds me of kidnapping. Holman Christian Study Bible says ransom. Redemption price is probably a little bit better. A ransom price for many. Now that Greek, famous Greek preposition there, anti, means instead of. He gave a ransom instead of many. In other words, instead of us dying and shedding our blood and losing our life, Jesus died and shed his blood. This emphasizes the substitutionary nature of Christ's death, penal substitution, 
which is one thing that liberal theologians and compromised so-called evangelical theologians, that's the first thing they throw away, is the penal substance of Jesus Christ. Now notice in verse 26, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servants. Among you? That shows there was to be equality of government in the new church. In other words, one apostle was not supposed to be ahead of another apostle, be co-equal in authority. All were submit only to the authority of the twelve apostles. There was not meant to be a pope. Now think of this. I know we always pick on the Catholics, but how about the Protestants? How many churches do you know that have senior pastors, junior pastors, elders, deacons, all the capital letters, associate pastors, junior pastor once removed, and you know, all the senior bishop, apostolic bishop, and on and on and on it goes. Jesus said in another verse, he says, call no man rabbi, but no, we don't do rabbi. We think of every other substitute hierarchical position title we can think of. Jesus did not mean for that to happen. Church government was consensual. The church members made decisions. The elders led. They did not rule. You can find five examples in Acts where the church or the apostles were ruled by consensual equality. I go through that in great detail in my YouTube video on house church government, consensual government, which you might like to check out. Now, Jesus here calls himself the Son of Man. This is Jesus' most common title for himself. According to the NIV Study Bible, it's used 81 times in the Gospels, but it's never used by anyone else. Only Jesus calls himself the Son of Man 81 times. Jesus uses it as the numero uno messianic title to describe himself. The term was messianic. It comes from Daniel 7, 13, 14. I continued watching in the night visions, says Daniel, and I saw one like a son of man. There's the expression. Coming with the clouds of heaven. This is coming up in this case, coming up to the Ancient of Days. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God on his throne, and was escorted before him. So the Son of Man is escorted, the Son of Man, the Son, is escorted before God the Father. And he, the Son of Man, was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom. And that's what Jesus referred to. That's why he calls himself the Son of Man, because Jesus was given authority to rule and he was given glory and he was given a kingdom. So that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him, which is exactly what's happened today. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So you see, this is a messianic term. Here's a synopsis of things I've culled from the internet concerning this term. I'll go through with it because I think it's kind of interesting. Many have said that Jesus used this phrase to emphasize his humanity. The Jewish idiom used son of to show a close and intimate connection with. Therefore, a son of man is someone who is human, is human, who has humanity. There is nothing wrong with this idea, as long as one does not use it to detract from Jesus' divinity. After all, Jesus uses the phrase of himself when he forgave sins in Mark 2.10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up and walk. However, ironically, the phrase Son of Man is actually used by Jesus to emphasize his divinity. He got the phrase from Daniel 7, 13 and 14, as I just said. And I mentioned uh, to him, the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and kingdom. This reference is the only relevant use of the phrase Son of Man in the Old Testament. From the context, it is obvious that Daniel is using the term of someone divine. The Son of Man was pre presented before God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. But we know even more than that than that which we can get from the context of Daniel 7. Daniel was a prisoner of the Babylonians during the famous Jewish Babylonian exile, 587-586 B.C. He worked in Babylon, and he worked in Susa when the Persians took over. 
In Old Babylonian, the phrase son of man meant heir to royalty. So when Daniel used the term, the term was functionally equivalent to saying that one like a son of man is rightful heir and successor to the divine throne. Son of man is essentially the same as son of God in this context. That's enough of that. That's a messianic title. Jesus calls himself the Messiah one more time. The Messiah, the exalted Messiah that they were all expecting did not come to be served but to serve. What an incredible inversion of priorities. What an incredible shifting of categories Jesus worked on these disciples' minds. Now notice that Jesus was said to, give, to be given a ransom from many. Now it didn't say a ransom for all. In other words, there's no such thing as general atonement or unlimited atonement. He didn't give his life a ransom for all. He gave his life a ransom for many. Now that's a good counterbalance to the verse, straight is the gate, narrow is the way. How do you reconcile that? Well, Jesus, when he said that, he's referring to the Jews who were not getting rid of their Phariseeism. Or he was talking to the Pharisees who weren't getting rid of their Phariseeism. And he says, look, you want to get to the kingdom, you're going to have to get rid of a lot of stuff. And the way to my kingdom is straight and narrow, and it doesn't go by the way of Phariseeism. But Jesus also gave parables about mustard seed and the leaven in the lump. The mustard seed grows and grows and grows and grows, spreads over the whole Gentile world. So we need to not get the idea, which comes from dispensationalist, pre-mill, pre-trib, s scatological alarmist, doom and gloomers, pessimillennialist, who constantly say, oh, straight is the gate, narrow is the way. We're not going to have many people believe in Jesus when he comes back. Nonsense. There's going to be a lot. Many are going to believe. Not all. I wish it were, but not all. But it's going to be many. He gave himself a ransom for many. Let's go to Matthew 20, verse 29. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Now, Jericho was about 10 miles from Jerusalem towards the Jordan River, according to Gill, 15 miles according to the NIV study Bibles, five miles west of the Jordan River, 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So Jesus has crossed the Jordan from and has started going north right along the river. He's not going into Jerusalem yet. Now, what did Jesus do in Jericho? We get this from parallel passages, according to John Gill. He met Zacchaeus, the tax gatherer, and called him into his ministry, the short Zacchaeus, who climbed the tree. He delivered the parable concerning a nobleman going into a far country. We're not going to go over those because they're not in this book. Now, there's an interesting fact about Jericho, and this is important for later on here. The Old Testament Jericho was largely abandoned in the times of Jesus. There was a new city south of the old city had been built by Herod the Great. So when they were leaving Jericho, they were leaving the new city, the Herod the Great's Jericho, not the Old Testament Jericho. Now, why were the crowds following Jesus? Well, they were waiting for that temporal kingdom, as John Gill points out. They were waiting for the messianic kingdom, and they think Jesus is getting ready to declare himself king. They had no idea that Jesus, on the contrary, was getting ready to be crucified. Now, we're going to have some harmonization problems here, because here it says that as they were leaving Jericho, and Luke, in the parallel passages, it says, as he drew near Jericho. And we're also going to have a problem with who was healed. One blind man, uh, two blind men, three blind men, or four blind men. We're going to have to go through that, uh, and I'll do that in the next verse. Matthew 20, verse 30. There were two blind men sitting by the road. This, of course, by the road is where blind men sat to get alms, and so they were sitting there. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they heard that from the crowd, I'm sure, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, son of David is a messianic term because David was going to inherit the throne of David, according to Nathan's prophecy in 2 Samuel 7. Everybody knew that, that David was, the son of David was the Messiah. So basically, these two blind men are calling out to 
who they believed was the Messiah. Now, here's the, the harmonization problem. We look in the other synoptic parallels. Let's look at Mark 10, verses 46 through 42 first. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho, I mentioned leaving here in Mark, with his disciples on a large crowd, Bartimaeus, which means the son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Many people told him to keep quiet. But he was crying out all the more, Have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, Have courage. Get up. He's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, What do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, teacher. The blind man told him, I want to see. Go your way, Jesus told him. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he could see and began to follow him on the road. We have some more details there. And we also, the detail I want to point out is this happened as he was leaving Jericho. Matthew says that they had left Jericho when the two blind men were healed. And Mark actually mentions a name, Bartimaeus. Now we go to Luke 18, 35 through 43. It says, as he drew near Jericho, which is not leaving but approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road, an unnamed blind man was sitting by the road. And he called out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Those in front told him to keep quiet. He kept calling out, more and more, son of man, and so forth. What do you want me to do for you, Lord? He said, I want to see you receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. All right, so this is a pretty much of a bodacious harmonization problem, and I'm not going to get into a lot of the details about it. I'm going to try to summarize the harmonization problem, and you can pick your choice or go study it further. There's lots of stuff on the Internet about it. All right, here's a summary of the problem. First of all, Matthew and Mark have Jesus leaving Jericho when the healing of the blind men of the blind took place. Luke has Jesus drawing near to Jericho. All right, that's the first problem. Matthew and Mark leaving, Luke approaching Jericho. The second problem is who was healed. In Matthew, two unnamed blind men were healed going out of Jericho. And Mark, Bartimaeus by name was healed going out of Jericho. And in Luke, one blind man unnamed was healed going into Jericho. So how do we reconcile that? Well, here's some summarization of a summary of harmonization possibilities. We can either say option A, four different people were healed. Option B, three different people were healed. Or option C, two different people were healed. Let's see how we would do that. If four different people were healed, option A... We would have one blind, unnamed blind man healed going into Jericho as Luke. And then on the way back out, Matthew heals two blind men. And then he heals Bartimaeus leaving. That's for a total of three. Three in Matthew and Mark. One in, one in Luke going in. Three in Matthew and Mark going out. They're all separate. Four different people were healed. Many people take that approach. Or we could say that three different people were healed. One blind man unnamed going in under Luke, and then two blind men and Matthew coming out, and one of those blind men was named Bartimaeus. Mark doesn't mention the other one because Bartimaeus was sort of well-known and became a disciple of Christ and followed him, so Mark singles him out. That's perfectly reasonable. Or we can have option three, two different people were healed. I like this one. All right, first of all, Matthew and Mark are referring to old Jericho which is north of the new Jer Herod's New Jericho, and Luke is referring to the New Jericho. So what we have here is, first of all, Matthew and Mark refer to, Matthew refers to two blind men leaving old Jericho. Mark refers to one of those two blind men, and he names him Bartimaeus. Both of them are leaving old Jericho. Now, as they leave old Jericho in the north, they're heading south, and they're approaching New Jericho, and Luke says, 
a blind man was healed going into New Jericho, and he's referring to blind Bartimaeus, the same guy that Mark was referring to. So you see any of these harmonizations apart. There are others, too. I mean, if you want to be a Ph.D. in New Testament, you can study all the other possible harmonization possibilities. But those are three good ones right there, and we do not have to think like the poor, benighted, liberal Protestant who says that the Bible has errors in it. If if people would have a respect for the Son of God and his scripture, which he said would not be broken, and if they would have respect for the New Testament scriptures, like Peter said, some of the scriptures that Paul wrote were hard to understand. If people would have respect for God's ability to inspire an inerrant scripture so that we might have direction for us in this veil of tears, how much better off would we be? Or you can go to the philosophers and listen to all their nonsense, talking about contradictions. Try listening to to history of philosophy course. One contradiction after another because they have no truth. They're blind. They're walking around blind in the dark. Go to Matthew chapter 20, verse 31. The crowd told them to keep quiet, and for the sake of this, I'm just going to assume it's two people, one of whom is Bartimaeus. The crowd told them to keep quiet, the blind men to keep quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now there's some options as to who these rebukers were, the crowd. Who's telling these blind men to keep quiet? They could have been friends of Jesus and who thought that the Messiah shouldn't be bothered by two worthless beggars. The crowd perhaps thought that they were asking for alms only and they didn't want to be healed. They were just begging and just, be quiet, beggars, you worthless beggars. The Son of Man, the Messiah, has more important things to do than to deal with you. That could be. Or it could be that the rebukers were enemies of Jesus. They didn't like Jesus being called the Son of David, which, as I said, was a messianic title. And they were Pharisees and, or Sadducees, and they didn't like people being called the Messiah because they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. So the crowd told them to be quiet. I suspect it, it was the followers of Jesus, not the enemies of Jesus, the people who were expecting a messianic kingdom that told them to, them to keep quiet because that's what people do to beggars. You know, beggars are really, really sad and people don't want to listen to them. As Adam Clark says, whenever a soul cries out to Jesus, the world tries to drown him out. These two blind men were another example of people who persisted in faith when they were hindered, the Syrophoenician woman was hindered by Jesus himself as he was trying to build her faith. Faith often grows because of oppositions and trials. God is not a genie in a bottle. If he just gave us everything we wanted right when we asked, rub the bottle, out comes the genie. God, do this for me. And the genie says, yes, master, your wish is my command. That's not who God is. He, he expects you to believe when you cannot see. He expects you to trust when you cannot see the answers. And these blind men literally could not see. So they were, they were having faith, and the crowd is telling them to shut up. Jesus is not going to heal you. Ooh, that sounds like cessationists. Shut up. Charismatics, Jesus isn't going to heal you. Matthew 20, verse 32. Jesus stopped, called them, and said, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus is not like the crowd. He has compassion. Now, I think Jesus is obvious what, what they needed. They were blind. <laughs> so Jesus was not asking this for information. He was asking this in order to get the two blind men to state what they wanted to show that they believed in him and that he could do what they wanted him to do. The loud cries stopped Jesus as when they were saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus heard it, and, they, and he stopped. And so he gets them to, as John Gill puts it, to make their faith manifest, forces them to state exactly what they expected. exactly right. Now we go to our last two verses in Matthew 20, verses 33 and 34. Lord, they said to him, open our eyes. So Jesus gets them to state exactly what they want. Moved with compassion, which application time, you're praying for something you can't see the answer to, state it to God and say, I want this. 
even though I can't see it. Verse 34, moved with compassion. Notice Jesus had compassion. The crowd did not. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they could see and they followed him. By the way, Jesus did all kinds of different ways to heal people. He healed them at a distance sometime. He healed the, 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 the problem area of the body here. He touched their eyes. One time he, and I never have figured this out, he mixed, well, I think he spit into some sand, created some mud, some, and, and put the mud on somebody's eyes and that kind of thing. The matter that he heals is not what's important. It's the attitude of faith in the person who's getting, who is receiving the healing and his importance, his asking, please, Jesus, heal me, heal me, heal me, or, or help me, help me, help me. Immediately they could see and they followed him. Apparently they were disciples when they followed after they were healed. Now remember, healing of, of a blind man is a huge miracle. It's a messianic miracle, as John Gill says, as we look in that famous passage in Isaiah 35, verse 5, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. When? during the Messianic age. The blind men may have, in fact, been aware of Isaiah's prophecy, and so that prophecy might have encouraged their faith. I'm not sure. Don't know. Now, the synoptics' accounts of Matthew 20 add Jesus saying this, your faith has healed you. Now, of course, that can be abused. The faith message, Copelanhaganism, does abuse this. Jesus is the one that healed him, but, what, but the faith was the door that allowed Jesus to enter in and heal him. We've got to be very careful not saying, you know, the, have faith in your faith, and faith resides in me, and faith, 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 faith. No, that's one extreme. The other extreme is, yes, you got to believe if you if you want Jesus to work. But it was Jesus' power that actually healed them. Healed them. But Jesus, what he meant was, is because you believed, I've healed you, so in effect your faith has healed you. Mark 10, 52, this is the parallel passage, one of them. Go your way, Jesus told him. This is blind Bartimaeus. And I assume he told the other, assuming the other blind guy was with him, your faith has healed you. Immediately he could see him again to follow him on the road. Luke 18:42, the unnamed blind man, receive your sight, Jesus told him, your faith has healed you. Jesus also said that when he healed two other blind men up in his Galilean ministry, I believe this is when they left, when they, I forget, it was right at the very beginning of his Caper, uh, as a, around Capernaum, I, I believe I remember correctly, in Matthew 9, verse 29, then he touched their eyes saying, let it be done for you according to your faith. To, to distinguish this, I call those the two Galilean blind men, and then Matthew here is the two Galilean, the two Jericho blind men, one of whom was probably Bartimaeus. So, our subjective faith does affect how much Jesus will do for us, but our faith cannot make Jesus jump around like a genie in a bottle, and that's where the faith message people miss it. They don't emphasize enough that oftentimes you can't see the answer. And they, they do mention that, but it becomes like Christian science. They say, well, you're not really sick, you're not really blind, blind Bartimaeus, you can really see, and they start talking like E.W. Kenyon and Mary Baker Eddy. That's nonsense. They were blind, but they, they couldn't see. But despite the fact that they couldn't see, because faith is the essence of things not seen, they believed Jesus anyway, and they did. Yes, they did make a positive confession. I can show you a lot of places where negative confessions were made and Jesus still worked. But anyway, that's not. this is not here to get off on the faith message. The point is, is that faith is genuine, it's powerful, and it does not make Jesus a genie in a bottle. Jesus will do for us according to our faith, assuming the answer in, in his, is in his will. And that's another thing. I believe God for Mercedes Benz. I've got a little 16,000 square foot house I want you to build for me. No, that's nonsense. It's assuming that it's in his will. Bartimaeus followed, or the two blind men followed. They probably thought they were going to see the unveiling of Jesus' messianic kingdom, as John Gill observes. But, as I observe, instead they saw Jesus crucified. And thus we end 
Our discussion of Matthew chapter 20. We'll take up chapter 21 in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one. Thank you.